Bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free. Thank you for reminding us of what true family looks like, what a privilege it is, what an honor it is to serve shoulder to shoulder with each other in the trenches. We don't have that long on earth, Father, but you give us enough time to bring glory to you by means of your grace if we humbly submit to your will. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for that example of humility that hung on a cross to make even this evening a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 29. Um, fantastic. Um, getting a lot of good feedback, even from without the local assembly. Folks that are just sort of listening in online, or they're not local, or they... They're actually, who knows, members somewhere else or something like that, and they just want some more in the gospel. But the feedback has been uh, encouraging, so um, keep that in mind. Uh, it seems, I, I, once again, I spoke too soon. It's what keeps me humble. The Spirit is not done with Second Timothy 3, 6, and 7, so go there. That's why I never should say anything like that. I figure I'd learn after... Six years or something. Anyways, so he's not done, and this is, it started as a little sidebar. I had no idea it was going to develop the way it has, but I'm really glad it has. It's um, bringing out some wonderful principles. Second Timothy 3 6. <clears throat> For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women. I gave you the original on both of those, or that, uh, both of the words, captivate weak women, weak women being a single Greek word, weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. And we'll finish that statement since it's not a complete sentence there. Uh, but first, up here on the board as a point of summary from the good work we've done so far on this passage the issue the Spirit's been bringing out has been falling prey to sin. There are few prey easier to captivate, and that's that uh, malo tizo in the Greek, captivate, it means to take captive in the military sense. There are few prey easier to captivate than weak women. Gunai karion, and those are borrowed from 2 Timothy 3.6. And that's what Paul was saying in many ways, and that's what the Spirit has been amplifying um, from this pulpit. We think about it this way, that it's not just those from without that are sinning. It's not that the weak women are without blame, so to speak. It's Paul is including both individuals, both formats, if you would, of sin, in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 6. So there is um, a capture being 
or occurring here of weak women, but he's holding the weak women responsible to a degree. So sin has a tendency to collaborate. If there's more than one sinner, then they tend to collaborate in this way, and it's a sort of a weak way of saying it, but that's a nice way of thinking about it. Sin has a tendency to collaborate outward with inward and vice versa. And this got us thinking on a topic that he's been really harping on for well over a year, probably years, plural now, uh, certainly from the pulpit and even through select blogs. It got us thinking about responsibility for self. Seems to be a really big area of concentration for the spirit lately. I suppose it's for a multitude of reasons, not the least of which might be the world's intent on convincing everyone that they are victims. That seems to be the order of the day, that the world says to a sinner, don't worry about it, you're a victim. We'll find a way to make you the victim, and therefore you can deflect, in a sense, your own sort of doings in the goings-on. So the world is mighty on this intent to convince everyone that they are victims, even when they're not. And there's actually a phrase that's so obvious nowadays, a phrase has been coined, self-victimization. This is from Wikipedia. Self-victimization, or victim-playing, is the fabrication of victimhood for a variety of reasons such as or such to justify abuse of others, to manipulate others, a coping strategy, or attention-seeking. Again, this self-victimization or victim-playing is the fabrication of victimhood for a variety of reasons, such to justify abuse of others, to manipulate others, a coping strategy, or attention-seeking. Practically speaking, when a person blames everyone else for their own poor decision-making, compounds their sinning even further. When a person blames everyone else for their own poor decision-making, compounding their sinning even further, that's the practical side of self-victimization. I did some more research on this and found the following uh, from a website, outofthefog.net, and it really was based on medical people with um, personality disorders, etc., etc. So it was an admixture of all kinds of things, but on this note of self-victimization, they had a list of things, what it looks like. For example, a spouse challenged over emptying the joint account, complains the other partner is neglecting their needs. A husband hits his wife, and then when confronted with his actions, complains that he is treated worse in other ways. You see what's going on. I did a wrongdoing, but I'm the victim. That's self-victimization. A mother beats or neglects her children and diverts challenges about it by only discussing her own medical complaints. I'm assuming these are all cases that came up um, 
in this organization. A spouse is having an affair and claims the other partner drove them to it. A person spreads false accusations about physical or sexual abuse in the home. A thief caught red-handed tells stories about how they were abused as a child. A narcissistic boss mistreats a subordinate and then claims the subordinate's behavior was hurting the company as justification. A teenager starts a fight with a sibling, then complains about the resulting bruises. <laughs> and a young girl overdoses and then says she did it because no one or nobody listens to her. So, hopefully you see the pattern that we see with this type of individual, the one who self-victimizes. They always play the victim. No matter what they do, there's always some excuse as to why they sinned or they wronged someone else. They're always the victim. We see it in the courts, even. Someone murders someone, they get off with a light charge. Why? Because of something in their past. Somehow the jury gets swayed because of a fantastical lawyer. Last time I checked, if you did something wrong, you pay the price. You did something wrong, you did something wrong. It doesn't matter what led up to it. You made a decision to do something wrong. And that's that. But people like to play the victim. So that's the pattern. And that's what Paul's getting at. Don't play the victim. Yes, there are pressures from without, but you're the weak woman. You've arrived as a weak woman because of the slew of sinning that you chose to do. Now, can we sympathize with one another? Sure. But sympathizing and justifying are two different things. You can sympathize as to how someone might arrive at a certain uh, train or um, lifestyle of sinning. Sure, you can sympathize with that. But it's never justified. And that's what even Paul is saying. That's what Scripture says. At some point, you have to take responsibility for yourself. Stop playing the victim for everything. So that's the pattern that we see with this type of individual. They are constantly pointing fingers, but unwilling to look directly into the mirror. Here's the problem when we bring that strategy then to the spiritual life. It's precisely what Paul is getting at when he follows up the verse on captivating weak women. Look at it again, verse 6. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Look what happens. Always learning from other sinners, nonetheless. The context here, obviously, are false teachers, but the principles are that there is sin from without and sin from within. They come together. Now you've got an individual that's always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That means they're never actually going to be sanctified. That's what happens in this situation. And Paul's not letting either sinner off the hook. And that's what the Spirit's been saying. It's easy to point the finger at the person who goes in towards the weak women. Are you surprised by that? 
Are you surprised that Satan would use an agent that way to go after the weak one in a family, in a household? Of course not. What's he been teaching us? But every individual in a household also has a God-given free will and a conscience that knows when they're doing something wrong. And the worst thing a person can do is what the Spirit's saying, do something wrong and then blame someone else for doing something wrong. That person never grows up. So Paul is essentially saying that because, because of their state of sinning, their spiritual growth has been stunted. Hold on a second. I got a I got an update on my computer. Obviously, someone doesn't want this again. Wants me to restart. No. Are you kidding me? Unbelievable. Satan hates these kind of lessons, truth be told. Hates them. Why? Because they're real. And they don't let people off the hook. And that's part, some of the feedback I got from outside, by the way. Very grateful individuals that say, thank you for standing up for truth, and thank you for teaching the lessons that nobody else wants to teach. That nobody else has the backbone to teach. Anyways. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what happens. So Paul is essentially saying that because of their state of sinning, their spiritual growth has been stunted. So we might look at it this way, that self-victimizers remain young, quote-unquote. They remain young. The problem with being from the weak women camp, and again, it can be man or woman, being from that camp is that a person never grows up. It's often why those fed up with such antics can be heard exclaiming, grow up! Again, self-victimizers remain young. The problem with being from the weak women camp is that a person never grows up. That's the key problem that the Spirit wants you to take first off here. If you want to grow up, you can't be a self you can't be a self-victimizer. You can't abide in self-victimization. You can't keep blaming everybody from years past for your problems, whether it was last year or 20 years ago. It doesn't matter, or 30 or 40 or 50 for some people. Were you a victim then? Yeah. But that's that. You still have a free will. The problem with abiding in that sphere is that a person never grows up. And you'll be around people like that, because they're pretty common, You'll hear people in their vicinity, often family members, telling these people, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to grow up? Seriously, it's ridiculous. Stop blaming me or, you know, whoever. When are you going to grow up? So some of you, I can only imagine, are already identifying with what the Spirit's saying here. You may have family or friends that you have said those very words to grow up. Or maybe you've had them said to you. Or maybe you have said those words to yourself in humility. I know I have. Many a times. 
I've said, grow up, dude. Seriously, grow up. What are you thinking? What's going through your head right now? So reflect for a moment. But we're talking about lifestyle, by the way. Okay? We're also talking about lifestyle here. Some people just get stuck in a lifestyle. They never grow up. And it becomes a habit to play the victim. Why do you think God himself ordained this night for you, this pulpit, this church, this pastor? It's so that some of you can quit being little babies, pointing fingers at everyone else for your sins. I didn't ordain this stuff. I just showed up. (laughs) It's really for some of you, and I don't, it's not my business who it is that's being convicted, but it's so that some of you stop pointing fingers at everyone else for your sins, and you begin accepting personal responsibility for your own thoughts and actions. Amen? Amen. That's, so stop skirting self-responsibility is what the Spirit's saying. Stop blaming, blaming everyone else for your problems. Don't you realize that Satan encourages self-victimization because it keeps you from glorifying God in time? There's no glory given to God for the person who plays the victim throughout their whole life. There's no glory. How's he working with that? The person won't take responsibility for their own actions. So he has no what no to do with them. He, can't, he knows what to do with them. He has nothing to do with them towards sanctification. So they're stuck. They remain young. And those people remain, because there's an emotional bent, etc., easy prey. And because they're easy prey, they're easily led away, just like a little child is. And that's what happens their whole life. They never come to the knowledge. They never get sanctified. They never grow up. But who's the one who keeps making the bad decisions that keeps them there? Keeps them in that estate of being a weak woman. They are. They cannot blame anyone from without. It's not like, listen, this is the other one. When it comes to these people, they forget that everybody else is under the same kind of pressure. Everyone else is under the same kind of attacks. But somehow everyone else is managing. And everybody else has been a victim in some way. And you're not the worst victim that ever lived. So everybody's been a victim some way in their life. But everybody, some people seem to be getting along just fine. Who is a greater victim than Jesus Christ? You know him blaming sin. He never sinned. And that's what brought glory to God. Because Jesus lived by grace. It's the person who doesn't live by grace that stuck in their spiritual childhood. So don't you realize, and this is the softer point here, so please, don't you realize that Satan encourages self-victimization because it keeps you from glorifying God in time? He wants you to play the victim every chance you get. Because he knows as long as you play the victim and keep pointing fingers, guess what? God's got nothing to do with you right now. He can't work with that for sanctification. Because it's arrogance, not humility. 
So God's grace sanctifies you. However, since self-victimization stunts spiritual growth, the glory that ought to be His through you is missing. What He really wants to do is take a person who truly has been victimized and deliver them from it. That's what he really wants to do. He doesn't want a person sitting there and blaming that for the rest of their life and blaming every sin on that issue. That's not sanctification. So it is God's grace that sanctifies you. However, since self-victimization stunts spiritual growth, the glory that ought to be His through you is missing. This is why you've been given this night, this pulpit, this church, this pastor. Let's look at Scripture. Go to Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11. This is why some of you need to get out of your own way, need to stop living in the past, need to stop uh, playing blame game and victimized this and that. And the Spirit's not saying that we haven't all been victimized. We have. But that doesn't justify sin. Ephesians 4.11 And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. The Spirit did this. He's the one who empowers it. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a what? A mature man, not one that's stunted in self-victimization, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Sounds like 2 Timothy 3, doesn't it? but by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we ought to what? Grow up! A lot of you, frankly, could just rest on that word for the entire holiday season. Grow up! It's about time. Just saying. But speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in all aspects, into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In love. Again, up here on the board, don't you realize that Satan encourages self victimization because it keeps you from glorifying God in time. Since we are officially on the topic of sanctification, we must understand that it cannot happen if a person refuses to take responsibility for all of their thoughts and actions. They're your thoughts and actions. It doesn't matter who tempted you. It certainly wasn't God. We learned that in James. It's not God who tempts. Everyone in here, all right, raise your hand if you haven't been tempted today. (laughs) So guess what? Everybody in here is tempted. 
And Satan's smart enough to, to tempt us literally in our weakest places at the weakest times. So just because you think that you have this tremendous weakness because of something over there, well, it's all relative. Maybe someone else is weak in this area, and they get attacked daily in that area. And you're like, that's nothing. Mine's way worse. Therefore, I get more blame to give. Wait a minute. Whoa, what? What scale of values are we on here? When's the last time you walked in someone else's shoes? But that's another game that self-victimizers do. They proclaim themselves the most victimized on the planet, as if it's some kind of competition. And nobody else understands. That's why they have the right to justify their actions. No, they don't. God says, no way. You need to take responsibility for all your own sins. And this endeavor has nothing to do with admitting or confessing your sins to others. It has to do with being honest with God in the privacy of your own soul. Why? Up here in the board. Few things seem to debilitate the healing power of the Word more than self-victimization. Sanctification is stunted for as long as a person continues to blame others for their own sins. Think about it. Few things seem to debilitate the healing power of the word more than self-victimization. Why? Because a person's not actually being honest. They're not actually being humble. They're being like a weak woman. Spun up possibly in emotionalism. Years of emotionalism. Who knows? But their growth has been stunted as a result of blaming other people for their sins. No. The Word says no. You show me where that is in the Word of God, where you get the right to justify your sin because of anybody else. You show me that in the Word of God and I'll teach it. You know what? It's not there. Is there a certain sympathy? Of course there is. That's not what we're talking about. We're not saying we don't sympathize with people that truly have been victimized. Of course we do. We're there for one another. We bear one another's burdens to lift the load. That's not what we're talking about. But I'm not going to take, <laughs> I'm not going to take the blame for your sinning. I got enough problems, right? And nor do I expect you to take mine. Seriously, if you aggravate me to the nines and I flip out and do something stupid, do I have the right to blame you? No, I don't, do I? I really don't. At the end of the day, I lost, guess what this is, you ready? A fruit of the Spirit. I lost self-control. And since it's fruit of the Spirit, you know that God the Holy Spirit is going to convict me to keep my what? Self-control. And when I know the right thing to do and I don't do it, to me it's a count of what? A sin. Oh, man, you mean it works like that? Yeah, it works like that. I guess I really am responsible for my own sins. And you really wouldn't want me to blame you for my sinning, right? Because you have enough on your own, I'm a, presumably, unless I'm the only jackass in here. <laughs> right? This is not what God wants. God doesn't want a bunch of self-victimizers who play this game for the remainder of their lives and stay stuck. Hey, hello. And stay stuck. Look, everybody's like this. 
just moving his shoulder, like, can I shut it off? And just <laughs> Haven't had that in a while. Who was it? Seriously. <laughs> I, I, I already know who it is. I'm just wondering if they're going to be honest. It's like, no. It was the bells on the... <laughs> Happy thoughts. Few things, to de- few things seem to debilitate the healing power of the word more than self-victimization. Listen, this is not about pointing fingers, about making people, you know, depressed about them being this way. This is about deliverance. We're talking about what's our subject? Sanctification. This is about sanctification. Your sanctification is stunted for as long as you play the victim for your whole life. And the Spirit's just basically saying, cut it out. So sanctification is stunted for as long as a person continues to blame others for their own sins. The other key point from Tuesday's lesson that relates to this is this up here on the board. And it is a next of kin as far as principles are concerned. The consequences of sin. While every sin for the believer was paid for on the cross, the consequences of sin, experientially realized in time, remain to various degrees. Some of them, like we've laughed about, you know, are uh, like poof. But some, some sins may affect us for a lifetime. Not that we think we're going to go to hell because of it, because the cross took care of the judgment, but the consequences of that sin are real. I suppose the, quote, game for the self-victimizers is that they think that if they point their finger at someone else, the consequences of the deflected sin will be applied to the other person as well. In other words, they did it, everything goes their way. The blame, the consequences, everything goes their way. I'll go on sinning, but I'm going to blame everything on you. I have this full expectation that you're going to pay the consequences too. But that's folly. Speaking of folly, and specifically of lifetime consequences, I gave you some statistics worth reiterating. Now, for whatever reason, maybe you guys are horrible at this. None of my business, but all I can say is, this pulpit's ordained by God. And that slide right there was for all of you. For who? How do I know? I don't really care because, for many reasons, but I mean I care because I love you and I don't want you to hurt anybody or yourself. And there's no text worth hurting anyone over. There just isn't, folks. How did people, I, I wonder sometimes, how did people live before cell phones? No, seriously. How, how, how did people live before cell phones? It's amazing. So these are just statistics. I'll go through them quickly since we covered them on Tuesday. Five seconds is the minimal amount of attempt or attention that a driver who texts takes away from the road. At 55 miles an hour, which is really slow by today's standards, that's a football field travel. That's a long time not to be looking at the road. It doesn't take very long for a little kid to follow a ball out in the road. Well, what if it was your dog? How would you feel about that? And you found out that 
someone was texting and driving and they ran over your beloved dog. Send him to hell! (laughs) Wait a minute. Let me text my friend. Send that person to hell! It's funny. People have double standards, don't they? A week later, dear... Spouse gets killed in a car wreck because of a drunk driver. Send him to hell! Burn in the chair! What? You've been drunk driving for years. Where's the double standard here? This is all he's saying. Well, I get to do that because, you know, I was abused as a kid. So I can do that. God understands. Me and God, we have an agreement. Really? Yeah, it's the Apocrypha. It's not in this Bible. It's my personal Bible. Personal revelation, I got in a cave in Cancun. I'm just making stuff up now. You get the point. People, this is, look at, listen. Texting makes a crash up to 23 times more likely. Teens who text while driving spend 10% of the time outside their lane. That's, that's um, is harrying the right word? That's harrying if you're a motorcycle driver, let me tell you. When you don't know what's going on, the person next to you starts fading in, and you look over their window, and they're like, <laughs> and they're in your lane, and you got two wheels. What's a scratch on their car is death. I remember the, 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 the young lady that I had gone to the, my senior prom with. Her father died shortly afterwards. Perfect driving record. Happened to be riding his motorcycle to work. Some jerk cut him off, put him in a guardrail. He gets a bump in his bumper. The guy's dead. It's not worth it. This isn't driver's ed, so I'm not going to put up the crash things. Everybody's like, it's just getting severe up there. 97% of teens agree that texting while driving is dangerous, yet 43% do it anyways. Here's something I didn't give you on Tuesday worth mentioning. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, reports that texting while driving is currently responsible for approximately... 1.6 million accidents every year. About 25% of all driving accidents. One in four texting and driving. Can you believe that? One in four. If I do my math because I'm brilliant, that's 400 million accidents. Just saying. That's 400 million accidents because of texting. One more new statistic. Is texting while driving more dangerous than drunk driving? From distracteddriveraccidents.com. The answer is yes by a long shot. Driving a vehicle while texting is six times more dangerous than driving while intoxicated, according to the NHTSA. Six times more dangerous than driving drunk. Can you believe that? And then that last stat I gave you on Tuesday, it's getting worse. 19% of drivers of all ages admit to surfing the web while driving. Still not 100% how that works, but they're doing it. Again, the principle being amplified is not the dangers of distracted driving. It's to impress upon you that there are consequences to every decision you make, sometimes very grave ones. 
So again, while every sin for the believer was paid for on the cross, the consequences of sin experientially realized in time remain sometimes for a lifetime on earth. This is not to take you back the bondage, of course, of spiritual death. For you are truly alive in Christ. Go to Romans 8.1. So as severe as this is, the consequences, as grave as they may be, were not to go back to the bondage of spiritual death. We're still alive in Christ. But he's trying to sanctify us. And there's a distinction, folks. We'll get to it in a bit. Romans 8.1. Just remember this. This is sort of a balance statement. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a positional statement, in other words. Okay? That's your standing in Christ. It doesn't mean there's not going to be any consequences for sinning. Because there are. But you're not going to go to hell for it. Let's put it that way. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. So furthermore, you're also not abiding in, if you're saved, you're not abiding in the sphere of death. It's no longer master over you, as we've been studying now for months. That's what you get delivered from at salvation. So there's a definite distinction between bearing the consequences of our sins and bearing the eternal punishment for them. That's the distinction. There's a distinction between the consequences and the eternal punishment of sin. Nonetheless, the Spirit wants you to face the facts. For example, for example, if you kill someone's little girl because of distracted driving, intoxication, intextication, however you'd like to look at it, The fact that Jesus died on the cross for that sin doesn't wipe away the real-time reality of facing her distraught parents. I know I wouldn't want to have that conversation. I know I wouldn't want to have to face them. It's not worth it. You killed someone's little girl. Why? Because you wanted to text your friend? Because this is an important work call? Are you kidding? Think about that. So if you think that the grace of God is going to magically deliver you from every consequence of sin, you are sadly mistaken. Matter of fact, he doesn't want that for you. If you think the grace of God is just going to deliver you from every consequence of sin, you are sadly mistaken. Here's an analogy. A father receives a phone call at work. His wife tells him his son has disrespected her again. The father forgives his son before he even leaves work, but he spanks him when he gets home. The issue isn't forgiveness. Romans 8, 1 to 2, for example. The issue is discipline. Proverbs 3, 11 to 14. Listen, if there were no consequences to sin, what do you think you would keep on doing? No, let's be honest, right? If there were no if 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 there was no consequences whatsoever to sinning, would you sin more or less? 
DJ, Moa! He's like, Moa! Like it was a chant. You see his arm went up. I'm like, what is this? Moa! Olympic podium. I win. Of course you'd, I mean, let's, right? Is that fair? So the issue isn't forgiveness. The issue is discipline. The issue is that you need to feel the consequences of sin. And as I wrote a blog and taught, the biggest issue, the, the quote, nagging one, is your good conscience. Because the Spirit's not going to let up. You know when no one else looks, you know that one? You still have a conscience. And God the Holy Spirit is always there. Proverbs 3.11, go there. So the issue isn't forgiveness, the issue is discipline. And with the right perspective, I know it doesn't feel like it um, at the time, as I believe Paul writes of, but discipline is good. Discipline is good. And that's with the right perspective. We ought to objectively and with humility agree with God, confess to God that whatever discipline he gives us is just and right and necessary. And those are the consequences of sin. Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. That's the proper perspective. Not the self-victimization game. You sinned, own up to it. Whatever that means. I don't know what that means. And it certainly begin in the conscience if it wasn't harm done to someone else, like hurting a family member or something like that. Minimally, you're going to have a conviction in the conscience. More than that, it could be you're dealing with a real big problem, a real tragedy, not just in your life, but possibly in the lives of others that you don't even know. He wants you to feel that pain. He wants you to understand the conviction that comes with sin. It's part of the consequences. So there's value in discipline. There's a certain, let's say this, there's a certain understanding that exists on the other side of discipline. So you go through the discipline and you look back. And there's a certain understanding on the other side. Would you agree? Yeah. And that's what the Bible teaches. That's why you don't loathe his reproof. You say, oh, yes, I confess it. I'm going to go through it. You're just. You're right. I deserve whatever I'm going through. I'm not going to blame you. I'm not going to stop talking to you. I'm not going to stop praying to you. I'm going to pray to you that your will be done. And go, but maybe you can go easy. I was kidding. <laughs> you want whatever it takes to adjust you. So there's a certain understanding that exists on the other side of discipline. Something that discipline 
uniquely teaches us there's a something is just like we all agreed to. No discipline, we obviously all agreed, we don't learn. Discipline teaches us something, however you'd like to qualify it or quantify it, however. I think it might be somewhat unique from case to case. But it does teach us something. So going through the discipline, accepting that you are the sinner, and then going through whatever discipline, if it's all between the two ears, which is what I, the more I grow, the more it seems to be, the, the, the real agony, it's like, uh, like David says, against you and you alone I sinned, right? It's the real agony is between the two ears because the Word and the Spirit is just convicting you and saying, I don't, even, I don't want to explain it. I don't know how to explain it. I just know that I, I don't want to do wrong by my Lord. It's not that I don't care about other people that might get some of the ripple effect, it's not that I'm not looking, as Scripture says, to ask for forgiveness, to apologize. It's not any of that. It's the real, quote, sorrow, the real contrite heart is with Him. Because in that moment, we fail to bring glory to God. And that's the only reason we're here, isn't it? It's the only reason we're here. is to bring glory to God. So there's a certain understanding that exists on the other side of discipline, something that discipline uniquely teaches us. Verse 13, how blessed is a man who finds wisdom. That's wisdom on the board, by the way. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. So for some people to come face-to-face with and accept finally that they're playing victim their whole lives? Well, it may not be the most comfortable situation, but it certainly is wisdom. It certainly is the right first step to sanctification. That's what the Spirit's all about, folks. In any case, the Lord doesn't want His subjects to be wrongly convicted regarding sin. Up here on the board... Though the eternal penalty has been paid for all of your sins, the experiential aspects of it that affect one's sanctification must be dealt with head on. Why? Because there's value in discipline. There's value in, let's say, for lack of a better term, paying the piper. There's value in it. Because that's how we learn. Spare the rod, spoil the child. God doesn't want spoiled children that just say, Daddy's just going to show me grace. I am what I am by the grace. I'm going to go run some people over and there's going to be no circumstances whatsoever. No. That's not the dad I know. The dad I know has a heavy hand when required. And if he doesn't with you, you're not paying attention. Or stick around. All of that from an old familiar friend. Go back to 2 Timothy 3.6. 2 Timothy 
You see, this is where, this is how sanctif sanctification goes. It's like the, it's like sanctification 101. We don't just get saved and then it's, you know, a free-for-all. There's obedience in view. Obedience for a good reason is presentation, peristemi. There's the receiving of marching orders. We are soldiers for Christ. We're ambassadors for Christ. We're not of this world, but we're in this world. We have a purpose, folks, and it's not to serve self and bring glory to self. It's not like, la, 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 I'm saved, you're not. Goodbye, I can't stand you, you're not getting the gospel anyway, it's not for me. Or better yet, here's a cheap one. Good luck with that one. No. We're servants. I think people forget that. 2 Timothy 3.6 For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, they are stunted as a result of sin upon sin. Taking responsibility for oneself means putting a halt to blaming others for our sins. That's what the Spirit's been saying up here on the board. Evil from without is no excuse. Just because the Bible makes us aware of the fact that evil exists abundantly outside of our households doesn't mean it's proposing that we make excuses for our own sins. Up here on the board. To continue with that, you choose to sin. A tempter cannot sin for you. Don't get mad at God, like some people do. Listen, why in the world would you get mad at God because you sinned? Seriously. That doesn't even make sense. That's like, you know, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know. It's like going to a movie theater, right? You choose to sit behind the guy that's like taller than Jim. And then you punch the person next to who you don't know because you sat in that seat. What? Does that make sense? What are you doing? Why'd you hit me? Because I sat behind the guy with the big, and I can't see the movie screen. I know it's my fault, but I felt like hitting you. No, it's not my fault. It's your fault. You sat in the seat I was supposed to be in. I'm a victim here. That's how ridiculous it is to get angry with God. What are you angry about? Seriously, ask yourself. Next time you get angry with God, what is it that you're angry with God about? Ask yourself. Because you're an emotional basket case? That's what you're angry with God about? Because He didn't make that in you. He sat by and tried to stop you as you spiraled downward all along the way, but you were too busy in your sin, to pay attention. And you kept going and going and going. And you hit rock bottom and you say, God, I'm mad at you. Why? What? Why? Because I made all these bad decisions. Well, whose fault is that? Why don't you suck it up, put your, pick up your big girl panties, however you girls like to say it. Men, put, you know, pick up your skirt. Shouldn't be wearing one, but... Right? I mean, why, where do you get off? Where, where do you seriously get off blaming God. He didn't tempt you into those sins. You knew exactly what you were doing the whole time. Amen? Amen. So why would we turn and get mad at God? He made me like this. Yeah, He made you with a free will. Ta-da! 
gave me those awful, that awful family and that awful life and that awful place where I was born and that awful this and that awful that and this awful this. And I know I'm 50. But, you know, I'm just saying. It was awful. You don't know. I'm the victim. I'm king victim. Nobody understands. Therefore, I'm mad with God. You choose to sin. A tempter cannot sin for you. A tempter also does not suffer the same consequences as the sinner. For the sin is different. So even if you were entangled in something that had multiple people involved in it, you can't blame other sinners. You're the one who chose to be part of that group. You are. You're the one who got drunk and have gotten a bar brawl. Andrea. I think we didn't know. You just don't get off by buying Joey a puppy. That's not how it works. That's, we know how it is. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, though, right? To the sophomores out there who like to put God's grace to the test, in opposition to our Lord's own words, I'll say this. Matthew 4, 7. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. So don't abuse his grace, in other words. Don't abuse his mercy, in other words. You may say to yourself, it's not so bad. I mean, I keep on sinning, nothing's happening. I'll just keep on sinning. And he's watching, and he's watching, and you're ignoring your good conscience, and he's watching, and he's watching. And then you crash and burn, and then you blame him. says in Scripture, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. Why'd you put him to the test? Why'd you put him to the test? Because he had some mercy with you? Because he patiently was waiting on the side saying, what are you doing? Because he wanted to maybe let you go all the way down and crash so you could get on the other side of discipline? What are you mad at him about? You chose that route. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So that's for the sophomores. Here's the appropriate perspective that the Spirit wants you to have moving forward. Grace precedes sanctification. We are talking about sanctification, folks. Grace is meant to be attractive to a believer, delivering a person up to a lifetime of gratitude. It is not meant to be a crutch for sin, nor an excuse, nor an enabler. It's not meant to be those things. Go to Proverbs 4, 6, and I'm going to pick a spot to close here. Proverbs 4, 6. Again, grace is meant to be attractive. So Proverbs 4, 6, Do not forsake her wisdom, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, and with all you're acquiring, get understanding. Prize her, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. Again, wisdom. She will place on your head a garland of grace. Grace orientation, wisdom. 
She will present you with a crown of beauty. Grace-oriented person, truly grace-oriented person, not the one who says they're grace-oriented, but they're actually a sophomore and they abuse grace, not that one. The one that truly understands the grace of God, understands that God gives us grace to glorify Him, not so that we can abuse His mercy. That person, it's beautiful. Absolutely, stunningly beautiful. Grace is meant to be attractive to a believer, delivering a person up to a lifetime of gratitude. It's not meant to be a crutch or or sin, nor an excuse, nor an enabler. You might say, after reading Proverbs there, well, what does God's grace and beauty look like? What does it mean, I'm going to have a garland grace, crown of beauty? What does that mean? You mean if I seek wisdom? What does that mean? What does God's grace and beauty even look like? Is it the woman held up by the world standards as the so-called pictures of grace and beauty? Or is it something entirely different? Have men and women for centuries, for millennia even, possibly been duped? You want to know what is truly beautiful to your Father in Heaven? And it's not your new $100 jeans? Scott, have you ever bought a pair of $100 jeans? No. Have you ever spent $100 on jeans, plural, at one time? No. <laughs> Me neither. So do you really want to know what's beautiful to God, to the Father in Heaven? And I'll end with this, because this is, this, this is a picture of what true beauty looks like. Philippians 2, 3 to 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do you know what's a couple of verses after that? The humility of Christ. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. This is true beauty. There's no one or nothing that's been more beautiful than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. You want to know what it means to have a garland of grace and a crown of beauty? Learn that. That's what will make you beautiful. That's what will make you beautiful. And yes, men, you too can be beautiful. Todd's like, I already am. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. We ask that we take all that we've learned this evening out to a world that is dying and is lost. We ask traveling mercies as well. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.